you were listening to yourself as you sang. Uh, some great words in those songs pointing us to Jesus. Uh, I was contemplating particularly that uh, Jesus lover of my soul. I, I don't know how long it's been since I've sung that one. Um, it's a pathetic song <laughs> in a good way. It speaks of who we are in our condition without Christ, and we are pathetic in a sense says, here's who I truly am, and here's who Jesus is. Here is what I need. Here's the one who really loves my soul and has what I need. Good words to contemplate and to cry out, um, really, who, who we are without Christ. And John chapter 3, where we're headed today, gets to that same concept as well. If you remember, we started in John chapter 3 last week as, as Jesus is approached by a man named Nicodemus. <clears throat> Nicodemus was the man to look up to. Nicodemus was a man of, of great reputation, of great authority, of he was a scholar, a Bible scholar, probably could quote huge sections of the Old Testament from memory. He was a man who was called rabbi or teacher or master. Uh, he was a leader of the Jewish people, a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, the highest Jewish court, an expert in the Jewish law. Uh, the man that people came to with their questions came to, to well, Rabbi, Master, what does this mean in God's word? Or Rabbi, Master, can I do this? Does the law allow this? What is it that I, that, that I don't understand about God's word? Can you explain this to me? And Nicodemus came to Jesus with a with a a declaration, if you remember, verse 2 of, of chapter 3, he said, Rabbi, he, he spoke to Jesus in a, in a respectful way, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Made a statement. The old older man, he calls himself old, later on, in verse 10, I think it is. No, it's not that far down, but in the chapter. Calls himself old, learned, person of status. Comes to a 30-year-old. A 30-year-old carpenter who is putting himself forward as a rabbi, as a teacher. Not trained in all the rabbinical schools. Not schooled under Nicodemus or one of his his fellow teachers to talk to him. Do you think rabbi, as a rabbi, you should be said, wow, thank you. Thank you, Nicodemus, for this, this statement of your confidence in me. Thank you, rabbi, for your stamp of approval on my, my ministry. Thank you, rabbi. You're giving a real boost by, by this statement that you've made. 
Is that what Jesus says? No. He says, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you've got a problem. It's truly, truly, verse 3, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, unless you have a new birth from God, you become new in your soul, you, you can't even perceive God's kingdom, much less make a declaration about how, whether I fit in it or not. And, of course, Nicodemus is taken back, right? Well, he had some ideas of what being born again might have been, remember? Uh, might mean becoming a, a convert to Judaism as a Gentile. Well, that doesn't qualify for that. He didn't qualify for that, right? Or different things that he might do religiously. And those were all things he'd already done or wasn't even, wasn't even eligible to do. He says, Jesus, I may as well go back in my mother's womb. This is impossible. Born again, what do you mean? Of course, remember, Jesus explains to him, it's, it's about a spiritual rebirth. It's not just about doing things, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're trying to have a righteousness of your own, not a righteousness based on what God is doing. So, Nicodemus, it's like the wind. And remember, wind and spirit, same word in Greek and Hebrew both. But the wind, it moves, it goes, it does things. You can see what accomplishes, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. Nicodemus, you need to trust in something bigger than you and what you are able to accomplish. You need birth from God. It's something that is done, happens to you, not something that you can accomplish by your good works, Nicodemus. And remember, we left Nicodemus in verse 9 saying, how can these things be? It didn't fit his paradigm. It didn't fit with where he was looking at life. He'd been busy doing and, and trying to keep the law and be the, the, the great teacher. And Jesus says, you've got to wipe all that away and start over fresh with a new birth of your soul. And Jesus and ended the section we looked at last week, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? In other words, because you've known the Old Testament scriptures, which he didn't, quite, they didn't call them the Old Testament scriptures, they were just the scriptures, those are, that's all they had. You should know this. Not only should you know it, but he uses a word for you should have, you should know this by experience. It's not just that you would have a thought in your brain, but you would have a relationship with God such that you would know it. And so we pick up in verse 11 this week, and we're going to make it a little ways through here. But as Jesus now connects it to him, because he never told him, how, well, how does the new birth come about? That's where he's going to take him now. So follow along, if you would, as I read verses 11 through 16. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how you you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, 
the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so as Jesus continues here in verse 11, he gives him another one of those truly, truly. We've had two of those already. Jesus would use that, and John uh, records a number of those times where he, he starts off with what he's, he's saying is truly, truly. This is, this is verified. And maybe if you're using the King James, your Bible says verily, verily, or amen, amen. In other words, pay attention. What I'm about to say is a truth that you really need to, to, to hear, to contemplate, to let soak in. So truly, truly, Nicodemus, you say, how can these things be? I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now, one of the things that, that Nicodemus or Jesus does with Nicodemus here. If you remember, in the first half, Nicodemus starts off by saying, we know this. And Jesus answers him back and says, you, Nicodemus, singular, must be born again. And he addresses Nicodemus' personal spiritual condition. When we come to verse 11, though, he turns it back to the we. He says, you all, you all, do not accept our testimony. He's putting him, putting him back in his group that he started with. He reflects back that declaration that, that Nicodemus made at the beginning. But he also says to him, we. Who's this we, Jesus speak? We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do, not you do not accept our testimony. Well, who's the we? Jesus and who are speaking to Nicodemus? Uh, something means it includes his disciples who were there with him. Uh, and that's possible, but really they're, they're just starting to learn by this point who Jesus really is. Is this their declaration of what is true? Are they in a place to give testimony like that at this point? And Jesus is going to talk about the source of his testimony pretty soon, and, and they don't have that firsthand knowledge that Jesus has. And though I think though Nicodemus didn't really, wouldn't, he wouldn't get this yet, I don't think. But I think Jesus is giving him something to consider. I think he's speaking of the Trinity. I think he's speaking especially, and he will say throughout the book of John, that his message isn't just his message, it's from the Father. It's the things that his Father has given him to speak. So let's just take a quick tour of the book of John and, and some places where Jesus says that. Go back to John chapter 1, uh, verse 18. So we've already had this one, right? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, what he has explained him. See, Jesus came so that we would know who the Father is. He didn't just come to say, here I am. 
So, but I'm here so that you know who the Father is. Jump ahead to chapter 7, verses 16 through 18. Now in Jesus' words. John 7, uh, verses 16 through 18. Get my pages to separate here. There we go. So then Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So here Jesus, even though he is the one who is, who is the word, who is God, right? He says, I don't come just to say that my things. I come totally dependent on what my Father gives me to say. Uh, the next chapter, chapter 8, verse 26. <clears throat> says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Notice, the things I heard from him. Jesus, though God, doesn't speak, doesn't act at all on his own, but he says it's the Father who's given me these things to speak and to say. And then also verse 28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So again, totally united, totally dependent on his Father. Chapter 12, verses 48 and 49. says, He who rejects me does not reject my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment as to say and what to speak. And then finally, 14.24 says, He who does not love me does not keep my words, but the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. See, Jesus emphasizing again and again and again throughout the Gospel of John that he's not here just because he chose to come. He's here because his father sent him. He's not just here with his own words, his own message, but he's come because his father has given him that, those words to speak. He's totally in, in agreement with them. Yes, they are his words, but not apart from the father. And it is the father's initiative through him why he should be listened to. Nicodemus's, you know, attention should be, oh, you're, you're claiming that the things you say aren't just yours. And like I said, maybe he doesn't get that here yet. But if he observes and listens to Jesus continue to teach, it's going to be coming back around again and again. But notice his emphasis. He says, you all, you all have, do not accept my words. You all do not believe the things that I've given you. And again, it's plural. So it's not just Nicodemus who has to be concerned. He comes relig representing religious leaders of this nation. 
They're rejecting Jesus' message. And Nicodemus is part of that rejection. Jesus has been speaking individually to him, but who he associates has an impact on how he accepts that. Will he continue with the crowd? That's been their, their, their reaction to him so far. They've said, no, Jesus, we don't accept that. No, Jesus. He said, Nicodemus, you're one of that group. You're one of that crowd. Are you going to choose yourself to follow me? Or are you going to go along with your, your, your uh, fellow teachers, your fellow leaders? You've got to stop and consider that there's a, an overall rejection happening here. And, you know, we all have that impact on our lives, too. We're impacted by the people we're with, the people we're around, the people we say, these are my people. And we believe, and we don't believe a lot of things based on what our group does or doesn't believe. And Jesus calls us out and says, that's fine that you have people that you're close to, but you will answer to God for what you accept and reject from him. You will answer individually to God for whether you believe and entrust yourself to him or not. Jesus wants to make sure Nicodemus understands, yeah, you're part of a very impressive group to men, but one day it's God you'll have to to talk to. But he says of them, they do not accept, they do not believe. And the verbs that are used here are are Greek present tense, which means you, you are in a process of not accepting. You keep on not believing the things that he's speaking to them about God and what he knows about God and his kingdom. And they have been in an ongoing way not accepting his ongoing testimony. So it's not just a matter of Jesus said something, they said we reject it, they move on. No, there's been this process happening. He says, I've been speaking to you, you all. And you all as a group have been rejecting. And he says, believing, that's that's the issue here. Are you really saying what he's saying is true? Are you putting your life on the line? In essence, saying, I entrust myself to you, Jesus. Boy, big deal for this older man, for those older men with this young man, Jesus. But he's been verified through his, his, the things he's doing, right? Now Jesus really zeroes in on this idea of believing. That's what it's about seven times From here, down through verse 18, Jesus will use that word believing, both in negative and the positive way. He says, here's here's what your issue is, Nicodemus. Here's why you don't have the new birth yet. You need to believe. You need to entrust yourself to me. And the problem is, as he goes on, he says, if I told you, verse 12, of earthly things, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? It says your, your resistance to my truth means not only don't you get the benefits of believing that, but if I tell you more, if I tell you further, if I tell you deeper, you won't get it. Because when you reject, you forfeit further knowledge. It's detrimental to your understanding to say no to God's truth. And again, it ties into that that need for new birth. If 
Being born again or from above is something that we can't accomplish from ourselves, then how does it happen? Well, Jesus ties it to believing. There's a choice involved for a person to trust the truthfulness of Jesus' words and then trust in him to make you new. It's an act of of your will. It's an act of choice, right? If you don't believe, you aren't born anew. If you aren't born anew, well, how can you even know the things of God's kingdom? Jesus is, is bringing it back around to Nicodemus. doesn't matter how much schooling you've had, Nicodemus. doesn't matter how important people think you are, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. You won't be born again unless you believe. You have to make a choice. You have to entrust yourself to me. I mean, if this, hap- if, if, if this which happens in this life and this earth is rejected, what you need to make, do in your choice right now, if that's rejected, how will you understand, Jesus says, if I want to tell you about what's to come, the things of God's kingdom that are, that are going to come that you want to know about? You won't understand them. Unbelief cuts off future knowledge, the ability to grasp and understand more things that God has for us. More truth won't help because they haven't entered into that state of believing what they already know. And no wonder in our world, so many people don't understand our future hope. If they don't believe Jesus' words about entrusting ourselves to him, about salvation, they won't be able to believe and understand more things about Jesus returning. They won't understand about Jesus setting up his kingdom on earth. They won't understand about heaven. They won't understand about a new heaven and a new earth. That that will all be nonsense because you've got to start at the foundation. So now Jesus says, but you can believe in me because my source is good. Verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Now, the, the basic thing Jesus is saying here is, I've been there. I have been in heaven. Now, the wording is a little little complicated here, and it's worded differently in different translations. Uh, I, the New Living Translation actually, I think, gets it pretty good. It says, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And so the, the idea being, you know, who do you know that's been to heaven and back? Come back to tell you about it. Tell you what's there. Tell you what's true about, about where God's presence is known fully. Nobody has. But Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, and I know that. He's come down and has direct knowledge of God in all of his glory and God's plans for the future. But if they reject the place of entry into knowing God, how can they expect to know things that are beyond their perception? But he's also, I think, tapping into Nicodemus' knowledge of the Old Testament. I think Jesus' wording likely turns Nicodemus' mind to Proverbs chapter 30, verses 2 through 5. So if you turn with me over to Proverbs chapter 30, it sounds quite a bit like what Jesus had to say. Not right at the first 
but as he, as he works his way in, says, surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One, speaking of God. And he asks the question, who has ascended into heaven and descended? The implied answer, no one has. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Well, no human being, and yet God has. Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Oh, only the creator can do that kind of thing, right? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Only the creator, God. What is his name? The Jewish person would say, Yahweh, right? The Lord. Then we get an addition there. Or his son's name. Surely you know. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Jesus wants Nicodemus to grab hold of that, that passage in, in Proverbs, I think, and understand that Jesus not only is coming with true proven words of God, verse 5, but also understand that now you can know the name of that son. You can know the one who has been in heaven. And he's come to you. You can know the one later Jesus will perform a miracle, right? Out on the sea with his disciples and he'll calm the winds with a word. Who has done that? Who can do that but God? Jesus' words are to be trusted, Nicodemus. You all need to believe and receive these words. But not only that, back in, in John 3 again, it says, but he who descended from heaven and he gives himself a name, the Son of God. Or, I'm sorry, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself. What's the Son of Man imply for someone like Nicodemus who knows his Old Testament scriptures? Hopefully you know this because we've gone here several times over the years. Where do we get that term, Son of Man? Well, in the book of Daniel. So go back with me to the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, uh, which hopefully this, this is a review for. We, we've come here many times, but here a vision that Daniel's given. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So here is one called the Son of Man, was given dominion over every nation, over every kingdom, over every people group. Wow. Which will not pass away, this, this kingdom of his. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so he just takes Nicodemus' mind and heart and he says, and plug this in too, Nicodemus. I'm calling myself 
the Son of Man. I have come down to you from heaven. So I have firsthand knowledge. But not only that, but I am this future worldwide ruler who is to come. Nicodemus' brain is probably about to explode if he's catching this. Maybe it's just stuff that he's going to have to take back and contemplate and think about and decide, can I accept this from this young man who's talking to me? But then Jesus says, but wait, I've got more from the, from, from the scriptures. Verse 14, as Moses lift, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So he, he throws him back again to, a, to, to one of the Hebrew scriptures, Numbers 21. So let's turn back there to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. It's another one of those interesting situations with the nation of Israel. Right before that, you know, they made a vow, and boy, we're going to be with you, God. Then we get to verse 4, and it says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. Can't relate to that, can we? <laughs> yeah, I think we can. The people spoke against God. And Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Miraculously provided manna is what they're talking about. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. But it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Well, that's kind of a wild story, isn't it? But they rebelled against God. They rebelled against the leader that they'd been given and started complaining to God. You don't take care of us. How can we live? We don't have food. We don't like the food you gave us. We don't have water. And God, God judges them and gives them death by way of snakes that bite them and they die. But there is a solution, right? The solution is Moses makes this bronze serpent, puts it on a pole, holds it up, and what do they have to do? They really don't have to do anything, do they? It's a matter of where their focus has to be. They have to turn their focus away from these nasty, venomous snakes that are biting them, and they have to look up at the serpent on the pole. Believe God for what he said would happen. And they lived rather than died. Their punishment, which they deserved for their rebellion, was nullified, was taken away. And Jesus says, like that serpent that got held up on the pole, that's what I will be like for you. And, and he uses a phrase, lifted up. 
which came to mean in Jesus' times under Roman rule, it was a synonym for crucifixion. And so he's taking this picture and now he's putting on it what's going to happen to him just down the road, not very far. He says, if I, I'm going to be lifted up. The serpent was elevated. He said, but I'm going, to, I'm going to die on your place. I'm going to become the, I mean, the, the serpent really is a symbol of what? Sin. Okay? Goes back to the Garden of Eden. Goes back to this situation. It's the penalty for sin. He says, I'm going to become what's not beautiful and be held up, be lifted up, but then also be held up before you. The question is, will you keep looking at your sin and its consequence, trying to figure it out on your own, like the people who died from the snake bites? Or are you going to trust God and say, here is my solution? I have to look to the one lifted up. When I look to him to save me, not looking here, then I will have life. Nicodemus Dig back into what you know. Process this about who I am. And the goal being, believe. Verse 15. That whoever believes, it's either believes in him will have eternal life or believes will in him have eternal life. Both are true. So depending on your, your, which translation. Because Jesus is the object of faith, believes in him, right? But it's in him being united with him, believing in him, that new life happens. Nicodemus is part of an impressive group. and he's, That's who he's, he's addressing at this point, right? It's you all. The need, though, is individual. And now he says to Nicodemus, you specifically need to believe. Each person has to come to believe. It's, it's not a group event that each of you believe, but Nicodemus, do you look to me to take care of your sin? And it's a present tense verb, by the way, believe, that whoever becomes a believe, one who is believing. It's something you become, not just something you did at a point. Oh, I believed back then. So now you believe, and it causes you to become one who believes God. That's your nature then. And it goes along with the new birth, right? It's not because you can, you can work up believing. But you believe, you're born again, you become a believing one. What's the result? Eternal life. Which is, again, another way of speaking of the new birth, right? The birth we have here, well, we're born, and what do we begin doing immediately? We begin dying, right? We move from our point of birth to our point of death, and the journey begins. But the new birth leads to everlasting life or eternal life. <clears throat> That's the consequence of believing and being born again. The one who is born again or from above is, is born into a life that never ends because it never ends in the spirit. Yes, your body in this world will die, but your spirit will never die if you have believed in Jesus. It's a spiritual rebirth. Jesus is also speaking to an older man, Nicodemus. And, and the reality of death is not so theoretical for him. He can look and see, I've seen my, watched my father die. I've watched 
some of my colleagues on the Sanhedrin who were older. They've passed away. I'm getting older. I recognize I, I won't be here forever. Nicodemus, are you ready? Nicodemus, you've done lots of good works. You want God's approval. You want all that you've done to be the righteousness that's necessary for you to pass into life with God. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, will you have life with all that you have piled up? But as a man who is, as Paul words it, is seeking a righteousness of his, home, of his own, I think he would have been wondering, do I measure up? Is it really all enough, even with all that I can say I've done? Jesus is letting him know that he needs to look from his own efforts. Look away. That this experienced man of religion has to turn and entrust himself to this young man he's talking to who's claiming, I'm more than just a man. I'm more than just a young upstart rabbi who can do miracles. I am the son of man. I am the son of God. I am the one who's going to give my life for you. You have to look to me. And he turns this whole interview on its head, right? Started out with Nicodemus. He's the one with the authority. Jesus says, no, Nicodemus, you have to humble yourself and believe in me. And that requires now an explanation, right? Nicodemus is like, how can this? He doesn't voice, how can this, these things be? But it's got to be going through his mind. And so Jesus then speaks. Or possible John gives the explanation here, and we switch from Jesus' voice to John's. If you've got a red letter edition, the red letters go to the end of the chapter. This could be John helping to explain here, but it's all Jesus' truth. And he gives us probably the best-known verse in the whole Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves. That's what it's really all about, isn't it? It won't happen unless God cares about these people. Now, keeping the law doesn't so much emphasize God's love. But what God is really doing is all about a care so deep that it's only found in him because he wants what's absolutely best for those that he loves. That's the nature of God's love. Well, what does that look like? Well, he says God so loved, and it's not much, so much that he loved them so much, but it's he loved them in this way. But before we get to that, who does he love? Well, he loves the world. We've already seen in chapter 1, you can look back there on your own, verses 9 and 10 and 29, that, that this is the world that he, what, he created it, right? We find out that God and Jesus are the creators of the world. But the world, when man chose sin, became not just God's creation with people in it that he made, but it became a system of rebellion against God. And so John often uses the word world in a negative way. It says this world is this system of people led by Satan to rebel against their creator. But still, that system, who's in it? 
people that God made, that he loves beyond our imagination. And the sinful way of doing things that's part of that system is contrary to God's perfect will, but it can't extinguish God's love for those that he created. So, God so loved. Well, how, how did he love? In what way did he love? He loved so that he gave his only begotten or his very his unique son. There's ways that people are called the son of God, but no one is the son like Jesus is. So being the only begotten means he is the unique son of God. He sent him, the one who was the most valuable to him, the one that was completely, he was completely one with, equal in essence. He sent the one who was united to him and could be called God, right? Back to chapter 1, verse 1, he was the word, he was with God, he was God. He sent the one that he'd had complete fellowship with for all eternity past. The one who was also completely willing and completely in agreement with his plan. Jesus didn't get sent and say, no, no, Father. No, he's like, yes, this is what is best and right. They were in complete, full agreement with that plan because his love is equal to the Father's for the people who make up the world. So how would he be lifted up for us? He would be raised up to become the sacrifice in our place to die instead of us for our sin. So he gave his only begotten son. He was lifted up. And who could believe? Whoever. Oh, not just the Jewish people as Nicodemus would have been thinking, just Jews have the favor. No, that whoever. It's repeated here for the second time. Whoever believes, whoever becomes a believing one, and it can't be emphasized enough, it's for anyone who makes that choice, anyone who accepts Jesus' words and entrusts himself to him, what he will do, what are, at this point is still future, and what, from our perspective, what he did to pay for our sins. The result then being, when we believe, when we become ongoing believing ones, we will not, what, perish, but have everlasting life. Sounds a lot like verse 15, but he wants to really emphasize this truth. So he says it again with even more detail. And Nicodemus knew that his days were numbered. Then what? How could he know? How could he be sure? He and all the people had to know that the answer is found in trusting in the one who came and not in trying to earn that life that goes on past death. Because Jesus says, who shall not perish. Perishing means basically a place of ruin. It doesn't mean annihilation. Shall not enter a place of complete ruin. And that's the great tragedy of sin, is it, is it ruins lives now. The sin that we commit, the sin that people continue in, what does it do to their lives? It ruins it. It destroys it, doesn't it? And we watch people who make one sinful choice after another after another. What happens? Well, things get worse, right? 
they perpetually, continually, progressively get worse. And you're in ruin, but Jesus wants to save us from that. But also, more than that, he wants to save us from an eternal perishing. Because he has in mind an eternal life according to his plan, according to his goals, according to what's all extremely good. He says, but you can't understand that until you trust yourself to me. Because sin ruins lives now, but it ruins them from eternity, for eternity if you don't accept his solution. You then go to a place of punishment forever. When what God wanted you for you was life forever. Life without sin. Life with his goals and processes and adventures, I think, for eternity. That can be yours if you believe. It's available if you simply entrust yourself to Jesus. The tragic thing is, is that most people don't accept it, but it's totally avoidable to avoid, to, to not have your life perish, be ruined for eternity. So we end here, right in the middle of what's being said, because we're already more than out of time. But what's your choice? Are you believing in Jesus to save you from the consequences of your sin against God? You can keep looking down at the problems that you've made for yourself, or you can look up to him. Or call out to him to save you right now where you sit into eternity. And you will be his with life forever and ever. Now, if you've already done that, if you are a believer, the question is, are you keeping your eyes on the one who saved you? Are you continuing on in belief, looking to Jesus for all that you need? Are you trying to foolishly make your life what you want it to be now in your own strength? We can do that even having become believers. Instead of looking up at Jesus, we look down at the snakes, right? We look down at the problems. We look down at, at the surroundings of this world system that we're still living in. Are you doing that? Or are you looking up to him and saying, he, he has a future for me. I need to listen to him about that future, both in this life and the one to come. The message of the section is be believing. Keep on believing. And it has a moment-to-moment -moment application for each one of us. Are you believing now in this moment for what you do next? Are you believing now in this moment for what you will do tomorrow, in the next moment? the next moment, and the next moment. Continue on trusting the one who is the eternal God. Let's pray. Father, so many things here. So hard for me to explain it well, and yet your spirit can take even my words and, and make a difference in each heart here, and I pray you would do that. Pray you would be with them to, uh, to help them transform their hearts and lives into the things you have in store for them, to, to, to find more and more of that blessing, first coming to faith and having their sins forgiven, but then living it, living an eternal life right now. Thank you that, that that's not only possible, it's, 
it's what you have in mind and, and, and what you will empower us to be and to do. Thank you, in Jesus' name.